Advent to Easter. We wanted a series that would take us um, um, getting to know our Lord Jesus better. came up in a class this morning, actually, the adult class, this idea of knowing Jesus, of hearing his voice. How can I know the Lord's voice? Well, hearing from him getting accustomed to his voice. And it's good to spend time in one of the Gospels. We, we have spent a lot of time going through the whole Bible. Two years we've spent on Route 66, and now we, we, after getting that big picture view, we want to dig in someplace. And I thought, let's dig in, getting to know our Lord Jesus a little better. And so we chose the Gospel of Luke because it, it has a, 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 a great opening several chapters in Jesus' birth and presents to us who is Jesus. And then we see what does he do. And so it carries all the way from Advent, his coming in, in nativity, all the way through Calvary and his resurrection. You could say it goes from Bethlehem to Emmaus. So we're going to be Advent to Easter, from his birth to his resurrection in the book of Luke, Luke between now and early April. Now, as we've done that, in the first couple of chapters, we've got introduced to Jesus. First of all, there's the, there's the description of John the Baptist, where he comes from in the birth announcement to Joseph and Mary, and then there's the birth of Christ himself, and we looked at that last Sunday. It was Christmas Sunday. It was, that was the story to tell, wasn't it? Well, those, those, those early chapters, those first two chapters, set up a question that chapter 3 answers for us. And the question is, who is this Jesus? And I know you know the answer to that already. That's why you're here, and so you're thinking now, well, why did I come here if what he's going to tell us today is who is Jesus and we already know? Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Maybe there's some things we assume about Jesus because there certainly were things that were assumed about Jesus or about the Messiah in Luke chapter 3. So I don't think it's any accident that Luke chapter 3 comes at this point in the story before we actually start his ministry for us to have this question, be confronted with this question, who is Jesus really? Let me set that up for you a little bit because I, I say, first of all, that Jesus is not like us. He's not like you think. Jesus is very other than us, okay? So Jesus is not like us. And if you've looked ahead in your notes already, you know that I'm going to try to convince you that Jesus is not like us, and yet Jesus is like us, okay? You with me? Not at all. Good. That's why you're here. You're going to try to figure out with me, what do I mean when I can say that Jesus is not like us? Jesus is like us. Jesus is especially, most importantly, for us. He can be for us because he's not like us and because he's like us. All right? You with me? Not at all? Then let's go into Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I want to read the first uh, eight verses. Let's read the first eight verses. Open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. You'll find it right after Luke chapter 1 and 2. You'll find the Gospel of Luke right after Mark, or Mark and Matthew. So when you find Luke chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea. Now this is a different time from chapters 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 was especially around the, chapter 1 and 2, especially about the time of the birth of Christ. And so it was uh, at the turn of the century, the turn of the millennium, really. Uh, king Herod is still king of all of Judea. 
But King Herod the Great is no longer on the scene anymore. It's been 12, 12 years later. Jesus is 12 when he, when he remains behind in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 2. And now in chapter 3, it's 18 years after that. In the year of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch. This is, this is not Herod the Great. This is one of his sons, the tetrarch or ruler of Galilee, but he's not called the king. And his brother Philip being the tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis. And Lysanias, tetrarch of Ab Abilene. I thought that was in Texas. Apparently not. But, okay, you have all of these historical figures. That, that matters. We don't really need to spend a lot of time on who they are. Uh, there's been questions over the years, and yet hist his history, archaeology, has verified the identities of these people. They're real historical people. During the high priesthood of, of Ananias and Caiaphas, there was not supposed to be two high priests at one time, but in a sense, at this particular era, there were. One was the son-in-law of the other. So the older one wasn't really the technical high priest anymore, but really, he organized for his son-in-law to be high priest after him. Guess who is really still in charge? Yeah, so there's a lot of that, there's that polit politics and political intrigue going on even in the midst of the temple. And the word, of the, the word of God came to John. This is the same John we got introduced to as a baby in chapter 1. The son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There's the message in a nutshell. A baptism of repentance for or because of recognizing the forgiveness of sins, and as it is written in the books of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, you pit of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It goes on, but we'll pause there. Who is Jesus? First of all, Jesus is a historic prophetic. He's a historic figure. I described you. He comes, he ministers in a particular era with identifiable historical personalities. This is not just a story. Once upon a time, long, long ago, in a land far, far away, it is far away. It was long ago, but it's real. It's historical. Jesus is the historic prophetic. It quotes in describing this announcement, this getting ready for Jesus at the start of his ministry. John's the forerunner. John's the one that runs ahead and announces, here he is. Here's the Messiah. And he does that using the Old Testament prophecies because Jesus is going to be witnessed or testified to. He's going to come in full agreement. You're going to know he's the Messiah because he fits everything that the Old Testament, the law and the prophets said the Messiah would be. He is the historic, prophetic Messiah. Verse 6, he is the salvation of God. He is the Savior. He is God's anointed one, the Lord. And that Isaiah was referring to there in Isaiah chapter 40. He's the historic prophetic Messiah who will judge and rule in righteousness. So this is where it gets a little bit different. Jesus was the king 
He was God's king. He was the king that everybody who had faith in God, that God would deliver them from the Gentiles, and particularly these troublesome Romans, was waiting for. And yet he was more than what they were waiting for. They're waiting for a Messiah who would rise up and would organize people around them and they would fight off the Romans just like the Maccabees a couple hundred years earlier had fought off the Syrians and uh, reclaimed Palestine or that area for themselves again and expelled the foreign rulers. That had happened just a couple hundred years ago. Recent in their histories, there was a hero, but he wasn't the Messiah. The Messiah would be a greater hero than that. And they expected that he, coming from David's line, he would be the king of David. He would be a king like David. He would push out the oppressors. And, they could, and he would rule them. And everything would be wonderful again. And the economy would be on an uptick. And the, and, the, and the stock market would grow. And unemployment would be down. And everything would be good. And you could, you could sell your house. And you could buy a bigger one. And you could buy a new car. And it would all be wonderful. That's what they were expecting. That's what they wanted God to do. But Jesus was more than that. He was more than that kind of Messiah. And that's alluded to in John's announcement. Make ready for the coming of the Lord. You brood of vipers, you pit of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, when Messiah comes, there will be not merely prosperity, That will not merely be kick out the bad guys and let the good times roll. There will be trouble that he brings with him. And the Messiah brought trouble. And he would bring judgment. That um, he says uh, there is wrath to come. That he is going to baptize you not only with the Holy Spirit, but with fire. Jesus is the historic, prophetic Messiah who will judge and rule in righteousness. And they come to John hearing this. John is announcing him, and they come to be baptized. Why did they come to be baptized? Um, Jewish people did not normally go and get baptized. Baptists do that. We do that here. But Jewish people didn't do that so much. But our understanding of baptism actually has its roots here and even into the Old Testament baptism was a Jewish washing to be baptized is to be immersed they were immersed in water remember the Old Testament story there was this Syrian general named Naaman and he comes to Elisha the prophet kind of a John the Baptist sort of a figure he comes to Elisha and Elisha and he, he wants to be he- healed of his leprosy he's unclean he's diseased this thing will kill him it'll rot away his flesh and he wants to be healed from it and certainly God could heal him God can heal anybody and he comes to the prophet, and the prophet, what should I do? Go dip yourself, baptize yourself, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. He didn't want to do it, but finally he gets convinced, and he goes ahead and does it. And on the seventh time, he comes up, and he is snow white, sparkling, clean. That dipping in the water was a ceremonial washing. What it said is, I am unclean. There was all kinds of washings of all kinds of articles. If they were ceremonially unclean, they need to be made clean. Baptism was like that. So with these crowds coming out to be baptized in the Jordan River, that history is there. They're saying they're not, they're not God's in people who have an inside with God because of who they are and who they're descended from. They're on the outside like the Syrian. They need to dip in the Jordan just like that Syrian guy did years ago because they are unclean. They, it's like they have a spiritual leprosy. They need to be made clean. 
That's why they come to be baptized. They come to be baptized to identify themselves with John's message that they need somebody, some way to be clean if the righteous judge is coming. Because they don't want to be judged by the righteous judge. Rather, they want to have their sins forgiven by him. And John's message was that here is the salvation of God. Here is the one who can forgive sins. But to have sins forgiven, you must say, I need to be forgiven. I need to be cleansed. So John tells them, he says, don't say, don't say that you are of the, um, of, of the descendants of Abraham. He says here, well, 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 let me read on from verse 8. Getting all excited here. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham for our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up sons for Abraham. Don't say that just because we were born in the right family, just because we've attended synagogue, just because we've gone to church, don't say that we're okay with God. He says, no, 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 you messed up. You're spiritual lepers. You're on the outside and the righteous judge is coming. You better be ready and ready is admitting that need of cleansing. And they actually step into it in an object lesson by joining in John's baptism. They identify themselves with John's message. They say, we agree with you with what you say about us and Messiah. We need God's Savior. We need the salvation of God who is coming. So that's what their baptism is for. They're identifying themselves with John's message. And he says from there... He says what they should do then, don't just say you're Abraham's children. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now there's something funny. He's saying, okay, if you believe, if you're anticipating the coming of the Christ, if you're anticipating the righteous king is finally here, then live like you believe it. If we believe, we should live like we believe. That's a a basic. There's something rampant in the church that we ran into in our own experience. When, when our first child, our first son was born, you know how they have these growth charts? And, and new parents are always tracking the growth charts, aren't they, Jill? Okay, where did he weigh when he started? And then, then a week later, what does he weigh? And then eight days later, and nine days, and ten, you, know, you weigh the thing three times a day to see, make sure he's growing because he's got to grow because it's important. Everybody says it's important. And if he doesn't track on the chart properly, what that, you know what that's called? A failure to thrive. He's not growing. Well, normally, 30-year-olds are not 20 inches tall and 8 pounds, 3 ounces, Right? In fact, somewhere along the line, we give up weighing the ounces at all, don't we? Somewhere on the line, we give up weighing the pounds, don't we? That's because we do grow, sometimes too much. But it's normal to grow. You feed them and they grow. Yeah, that's normal. But if that doesn't happen, it's a failure to thrive. Well, that happens a lot spiritually. That's what John's warning against here is a failure to thrive, a declaring that I'm fine, I'm healthy, everything is good, but I'm not growing. He says, if you're growing, make fruit. And I said make fruit because there's a word play going on here. He said, make paths straight. Every mountain and hill will be made low. There's a Greek word there. It's the word for make or do. And that's the word that John also uses for making fruit. He uses it twice in making fruit. When you don't normally talk about a tree making fruit, you talk about a tree bearing fruit, right? 
John uses the word purposely because he's going to go on and it's going to say, what should we do? And he says, do this. What should we do? Do this. All this centers around there's something to do out of faith. Out of faith there's something to do. We should do if we believe. That's what that cluster of that word for make or do is all about. Let me give you an example of that. Every, every tree in verse, uh, verse 9 that does not bear or make good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds ask, well, what then should we do? What fruit should we make? Can you be more specific? Could the preacher please be clear about the application? He says, yes, I will. Say, phew, I didn't know what he was talking about. But now he says he's going to be clear, and here it is. He gives you something very easy that you can step into. Whoever has two tunics... Or two nice warm coats is to share with him who has none. Let me show you. I have a coat. Isn't this a nice coat? It's Boston Harbor. It's a good warm coat. It's it's a nice kind of that micro suede fabric that feels nice. It's big and puffy. I know a really good coat is warm but not big and puffy these days but it's 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 big and puffy it might even make me look a little fat do you think this makes me look fat don't answer that it's a question you should never answer be very careful there i actually bought this coat at a yard sale a while ago and i bought it and i brought it home and julie's like she does that when i do weird things why did you buy that coat well it's an okay coat she wasn't really crazy about it, I don't think, actually. But I don't need another warm coat. I've got a couple of warm coats, actually. But I saw it, and it was like $3. Can you believe it? This coat, warm as it is, it's pretty good shape. There's piles of pockets all over the show. Three bucks. I can get a yard sale bargain. I know a bargain when I see one. And I thought, that coat would be useful to somebody. I don't know even yet who. But that is too good of a coat to let sit there for $3. And I bought it planning at the right time to give it away. And that time has come. Because, because it says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. If you, if, if you get the BP Blast, which is our email update that comes out typically Thursday, sometimes Friday. We sent it Friday this week because you wouldn't read it on Thursday. And... If you read the BP Blast, because a lot of you get it, but you don't read it. But the advantage of getting it and reading it is you would have known today was a day to bring a coat or to bring some canned food because we're going to do something with that. This is an opportunity to actually step into exactly what the Scripture tells us to do. He who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Share with the one who doesn't. So I said, this is the day to bring coats and cans. If you didn't get the email, you didn't get the memo, that's okay. There's next week. But remember next week. And I, I make a deal of this. It's a little thing. To, to, to give warm coats to one of the people in our church body actually looked at, at, at the bin out there and it had some coats in it on Christmas Eve. She said, I'm so excited about that. Is this a couple of coats? She's so, I said, why are you so excited? She said, every one of those coats is the conversation I'm going to have with somebody. I said, man, let's give her some coats. Yeah, let's do this. But sometimes it's especially important to us, not because of the needs that are out there for food and for coats, but because of our need to hear the word of God and simply do it. Just as 
easy as that, as simple as that, as clear as that, when it tells us something doable to just do it, sometimes we overthink it. We overthink ourselves right out of having to do anything. And this is something we can do. Every one of us here has something in our closet, especially after Christmas. You may have got it for Christmas for that matter. Every one of us here has something. I saw some of your sweaters. Every one of us here has something in our closet that would keep somebody else warm that we don't need. We've got something in our pantry that we're going to be all right still if we gave away. And that's what we should do. Even if it hurts a little bit. Let's step into this. How else can we step into this? He who has two tunics, tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors. Oh, here's another category. Anybody here a tax collector? Anybody work for the IRS? Not that you're going to admit. Okay, well, let's broaden it out then. If you have some, some government responsibility role, maybe, or maybe in business, because the tax collectors here had to do with collecting tariffs and business and trade, trade goods moving back and forth. So let's, let's broaden it out to business. In business, on the job, at work, came to him to be baptized and said, well, teacher, what should we do? And he says to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Don't cheat people. Fair practices whether it's in a governmental role, whether it's in a business and trade role, fair practices. Last week we bought a mattress, and I called a couple of stores. There was a sale. You already heard about me and how tight I am with money and garage sales and stuff. So there was a sale on mattresses, $79 for a twin. So I called them up. Oh, we don't have any of those. But we'll sell you the next one up. It's this much more. Oh, Okay. Well, I called their sister store. It was actually located in Battleground. No, we don't even have any of those. Yeah, I said, yeah, the other store told me that too. He said, yeah, we don't have any of those, but listen, this is what I'll do. We're a small town operation. We're a small town store. I'll give you the next one up for that same sale price. Wow. You know, actually, I, w- I went up and got the mattress. You know, I don't pass up a good deal. But afterwards, I'm thinking to myself, I need to go back and buy something else at full price or something. I need to, I need to do something and, and make up that difference because I love that kind of business ethic. That kind of practice. So somebody, rather than making it even appear like, well, this is just a teaser to get you in. We don't really sell anything for that. We're, we're going to up, up price you to the next category. No, no, we'll give you that. that ca- See, that kind of thing can be the, that fairness that giving to somebody else, even at some kind of lo- how can that fit into your work? Where can you go the extra mile, going a little farther to serve somebody else rather than ourselves? That's kind of the point here. Tax collectors in business, don't cheat anybody. Soldiers, those who have authority over others, what should we do? Verse 14, he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, Okay, accusation. Okay, well, that's good. Okay, I won't threaten anybody. I won't accuse anybody falsely. I'll only accuse the the dirty rascals of the things I know are true. And be content with your wages. Oh. And be content with your wages. You might not be a soldier, but that can still fit, can it? Wherever you work and whatever we're paid, to be content with such things as you had. We're told that a lot in Scripture. And, it, and it's brought out here by John as essential 
proof of those who are looking for and waiting for the coming of our Lord, being content with the things that we have. Jesus is not like us. Jesus is not like our expectations. We want, if truth be told, a Messiah who will give. We want, truth be told, a God who will meet our needs and more. He comes. The king comes with expectations. The king comes, for instance, I, I'm, I'm reminded of a, of, a, of a bumper sticker. Somebody earlier in the week told me about a bumper sticker they saw down in Portland. It asked the question, who would Jesus bomb? And it was a pacifist kind of, you know, war is a bad thing. And Jesus wouldn't bomb people. We shouldn't bomb people either. I got to thinking about that. Okay, well, there was that Sodom and Gomorrah thing. And I began to extend that a little farther. Who would Jesus bomb? Well, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, Portland, Vancouver, Battleground, Brush Prairie, if it showed up on the radar screen, all of us. See, that's what Revelation 6 to 19 says that all of the worth is, all of the world is going to feel the wrath of God when the, when the Messiah comes in judgment to reign because he cannot reign in righteousness until in righteous judgment he has eradicated evil. And that's why all of us who are evil better flee to the cross, better flee to him for forgiveness before that day of judgment and reigning comes. Before his judgment rains down, we could say that our Lord is coming not merely as the loving Savior who would rescue anybody who's willing, but our Lord is coming as the righteous judge. Jesus is not like us. Jesus won't see it as understandingly and as, well, you know, that's, we're, we're just human after all. And you know, we don't maybe give other people slack, but we expect to be given slack ourselves. We give ourselves a lot of slack, but righteousness doesn't do that. You see, Jesus is not like us. And we need a, a holy view of our coming King and Savior. That's healthy for us. Jesus is not at all like us. He is the historic, prophetic Messiah. He is not my dear friend in that sense. Jesus is not my buddy. He is the righteous King who will rule and reign. Jesus is not like us. John the Baptist sets forward a dramatic Jesus. And yet Jesus is very much like this. Pass over to the end of the chapter, verses 23 all the way to 38. I'm not going to read it all. And you say, but that genealogy is very important. That genealogy with every one of those names is as important as those names at the very front of the passage because those are all very historic figures. They really lived and breathed and raised family and planted crops and went to work. And they were real people running all the way back from Jesus' family line, tear traced through Mary, not Joseph. In Matthew, you have Joseph's genealogy. Here you have Mary's genealogy. I'm not going to even get into all of that. And you say, thank you. You're welcome. But the point I want to make is go all the way to the end of it. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In genealogy, or rather in Luke, the genealogy is traced all the way back to Adam. Because here we're, we're shown that Jesus is truly, genuinely, really human. 
He is like us. He is human just like us. He was made like us in all things, the Scripture says, yet without sin. Jesus is like us. Genuinely human. He is the son of the woman. The real son of the woman, going all the way back to Adam and Eve, when when Eve is promised that your son will bruise the serpent's head. The woman's seed will bruise the serpent's head. And so because his genealogy, his flesh and blood, trace all the way back to Adam himself, the first human that God created, so... So Wesley's hymn says, Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Because this king, this Messiah, who's not at all like us, is also just like us. And what that means is he knows you. What that means is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. I think I put it here. You can turn to it in your Bible as well. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. It says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, really human, genuinely human, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that happens in two ways. Jesus is a faithful high priest for us. Because he is like us, he is a faithful high priest for us in order that he's able to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Because he is genuinely human, he can die for humanity. Because he is God in humanity, his death is big enough to die for all of humanity, but it's a real human death. He comes and he identifies himself with us. He comes and he identifies himself with us in our humanity so that he can die in our place. He's just like us. He dies for us. And not only that, but because he knows humanity, he knows the temptations of humanity, your Savior and mine, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. His heart is touched with my grief, this hymn writer says. He knows the longings of the human heart. He knows the family relationship, and he knows what it's like when that family relationship is torn, torn, torn apart. Remember, his brothers despised him. He knows what that's like. He knows what it's like to have others look down on him and whisper about him. He knows what it's like to want to, within yourself, assert yourself. They can't do that to me, and yet he let them do that to him anyway. He knows what it's like. He knows the temptations of humanity. And he endured it all. And he then, by his grace, can come alongside you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. No, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's able to come alongside and say, let's walk through this together. I am with you. I know. I've been there. And he genuinely has. Our Jesus is not not at all like us. He's very different from us. He's apart from us. He is other from us. There is none like him, and yet he is just like us. He is fully human. He knows your heart. He knows the things you don't want to tell me. He knows the things that you don't even want to tell your spouse. He knows it, and yet he loves you. And that brokenness of humanity is exactly what he came to die for that he might rescue you from. Jesus is not at all like us. Jesus is very much like us. Sometimes the application is something we should do, like coats and cans. Sometimes the application is something we need to know. 
Something that needs to settle down into our being that we can trust God for. And that's what this is. He is a faithful high priest. Do you believe that? He is able to make propitiation for all of those things that you think again and still separate you from God. That's what he died for. And he wants you to know that. He died really. He died flesh and blood. He paid for it in full. And he knows human temptation and will meet you there and walk with you in the midst of it. Jesus is not like us. Jesus is very much like us, and most especially, Jesus is for us. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. The people were in expectation. All were questioning their hearts concerning John, whether John might be the Christ. And John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's not at all like me, John says. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What is that about? We get excited about the baptism of the Spirit, but what's this baptism of fire thing about? That sounds serious, and it is. His winnowing fork, his harvesting fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There is judgment day coming for all those that do not belong to him. Either your sins are judged in his death for you or your sins are judged eternally on you. So with many exhortations, John preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him, and it goes on, tells that story, he threw John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, let's jump back a little bit in time here, Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. So Jesus is baptized there with John. Jesus comes to John to be baptized, and the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is for us. John says he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, first of all, what does that mean? There's a lot of talk about baptism with the Spirit. There's a lot of talk about that. It means different things to different people. And I want to be clear biblically here. When Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, that's a good thing. When he baptizes with fire, that's a bad thing. That's judgment. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what that is, that, that you see that being fulfilled or start to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon all of those believers who had gathered in that upper room. And then it becomes a normal thing that the Holy Spirit comes upon each person who believes. It's the pouring out of the new covenant. It's the starting of the new covenant where, where, where in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel it says, says that he will put his spirit within you and you will live. In Zechariah chapter 12, I will pour out my spirit on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly as one weeps over a firstborn. He pours out his spirit so they can believe on him. And he pours out his spirit which they will be indwelt with under this new covenant that he has established, that God has established for us in Christ. So that's what that baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It's the starting of this new covenant. We celebrate it every month. We take the Lord's table together. And Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. That we stand in a new relationship apart from laws and rules and regulations. We stand in relationship with God through Christ because of what he has done for us. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will join you into the body of Christ. See, Jesus comes to be baptized. Why does he do that? John doesn't want to baptize him at first. Jesus comes to be baptized, and he does that to identify himself with sinful humanity. He identifies himself, the, one, the, only, one, the only one there that didn't need to be baptized. And John recognized that. But Jesus comes to identify himself with those who did need to be baptized. He identifies himself with us. And not only that, but then he identifies us with him. Paul grabs hold of a phrase you'll read in the New Testament in Paul's letters. He says that we are in Christ. What does that mean? That we are identified with Christ. When God looks at us with his measure of right standing, are we good enough? In ourselves we would not be, but he sees us in Jesus. And in Christ we don't barely squeak in. In Christ we have all of the acceptance that Jesus himself has in God's presence. You don't barely get into heaven. Because you were just barely good enough that your good outweighed your bad. No, no. We get in by faith in Christ, into God's presence, his acceptance. We get in abundantly because we get in in Jesus, not ourselves. Jesus is for us. He's not like us. He's very much like us. But especially Jesus is for us. He identified himself with us so that we also could be identified with him. So that when God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And don't miss the theology there. There is great theology in that baptismal scene. It's one of the few places in scripture where you see all three of the persons of the Godhead. The triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit descending. All three of them together, all three of them distinct. There's the Trinity in operation here. And yet, and God speaks of the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus identified himself there in that baptism with us, sinful, broken humanity, so that we could be identified with him. So that John would later say, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we, by faith in Jesus, we could be called the children of God of God. He says, and that's exactly what we are. Remind ourselves of that. Remind ourselves of who we are in the midst of this present age. Who are you really? You are a lot like all the rest of humanity, but like Jesus, you are also, if by faith in him you are in Christ, you are also very different from any of the rest of humanity. You are in Christ. You are a child of God. You are an heir of God and a joint heir of Jesus Christ. You have all of eternity in his presence before you. Well, the begs a question. There by the river with John doing his thing and Christian and baptism today is not, is not quite the same as John's baptism. But have you been? Have you been baptized? At first I don't mean getting wet. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized by Jesus into his body? Have you been identified with Christ by believing in him? Have you been baptized into Christ? Has Jesus baptized you with his Holy Spirit? Has the Holy Spirit come upon you? Because you believed in him. Not some second blessing that brought some power and some strange experiences. But when you believed in Jesus, you were then indwelt by his spirit. And the new covenant was effectual for you. 
you became a part of his new covenant. Have you been baptized? Have you believed in Christ and been joined to him? If you have, have you been baptized? Because what we do in water, what we do by, by going under the water and coming back up is to testify, is to declare to others. It's one thing to believe on Jesus myself. It's another one to, to stand then and to make that declaration. And God has given us a means of doing that that is the same here as then. There's not a lot that's the same over these last 2,000 years, but that's something that is. The same way the very first believers in Jesus demonstrated that faith, you and I still do today. We stand with a, a long line of history of those who have believed in Jesus, and we act out that drama that I die with him and go underwater, even as if I was joined with Jesus in his death for me, so that I might be raised up out of that water, so that I'm raised like Jesus, Paul says in Romans 6, to walk in new life. God has done something new here. And by faith in Jesus, he has made me to participate, to be joined in it. Jesus is not like us. No, he's very different. He sees things very different. We need to believe in to follow the same Jesus who turned the world upside down and will turn our world upside down. He'll give us a different perspective about things. He'll, t he'll tell us instead of grabbing things in and hoarding things in for ourselves to, to give away, to share with those in need, to do unto the least of these as if we're doing it for him. He's, he's very not like us. And yet he knows us so because he is just like us. He humbled himself and stepped down from heaven's throne room into humanity that knowing us and being of us, he could die for us because Jesus most especially is for us. We easily imagine a Jesus. We easily imagine a God who's mostly like me and sees things my way don't think it. He doesn't. He doesn't see things my way. He doesn't see things your way. He sees things his way, and I want to be more like him. I want to see things more like him. I want to be all the more made ready. I want the high places knocked down. I want the lack filled in. I want to be changed by him so that not my God is made more like me. I instead am made more like him. We need a God who is not like us, and yet we have a God who has become very near to us because he, more than anybody else you know, is for you. Let's step into that. Let's do that. Father, thank you for your son who, who knows us. Thank you, although he was, he was far from us, yet he came near Thank you, Father, that you've given us very specific ways that we can step into our faith, things that we can and should do. But, Lord, above any of that, you've given us a Savior to trust in, one who loved us that we can believe in. And, Lord, this morning, that's especially my prayer. Father, there's perhaps one here this morning that hasn't believed in you, hasn't believed in your son for them. Oh, Lord, would you, by your spirit, 
draw them to yourself. Lord, give them the courage to, to, to speak to me or to someone else here this morning that they might leave with that still unsettled, that they would leave her this morning knowing that Jesus was for them as well. Lord, there's someone, there are others here this morning. There are perhaps many among us that are struggling knowing what we know to do what we should do. Lord, would you help us there? Would you stretch us just a little? Lord, even in this time of receiving an offering now, that's a place where we can stretch ourselves and give to you. Give to the ministry of the gospel to others. And Lord, use it for that. But Father, there are many other things. There are things in our minds right now. There are people in our minds. Somebody we should serve, something we should do, some act of fairness or generosity that we should stretch toward. And Lord, would you by your Spirit give us the courage and the grace for that. And we will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to respond now as the offering is received.